This insert is brought to you by Radio K Pulpit on 7 to 9 a.m. Visit us on www.kpulpit.co.za. Into Me See. A place where we learn about deep connection. With yourself, those close to you, and, and with, with God. God. In our program Into Me See, we deal with reality, restoration, and redemption in the face of addiction. We uncover intimacy as seeing into me and the role it plays in healthy relationships. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. In this program, we'll explore what intimacy means and how to work towards it. And by the way, sex is only a part of intimacy. Yes, there is so much more about that. That's what we've been learning in our own challenges over the past 38 years of marriage. I'm Frederick Wools. And I am Suki Wools. Both of us are licensed counsellors and we're looking forward to embark with you on a journey towards greater intimacy. We continue to explore what intimacy means and look at the crucial role that it plays in the development of healthy, authentic and lasting relationships. Yes, especially in these times when there are multiple distractions, such as phones and social media, that rob us of intimate relationships with God, with other human beings, and with ourselves. So far in this program, we've looked at what intimacy means and the role it plays in our relationships. Previously, we shared our experiences with regards to porn and sex addiction. In October's programs, we'll be focusing on integrity and why that is important to intimacy. Today, we'll be looking into what the typical patterns of addiction are, and how it influences and impacts integrity and intimacy. Frederick, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions today because you've got the history of a person that dealt with this addiction. Mm -hmm. So um, what is meant by the typical patterns of addiction? Um, well, somebody, a therapist, put it very well. They said that the basic foundation of addiction is the same. Something like a pizza base uh, that has cheese and uh, tomato sauce and that type of thing. But the toppings are very different. So it is something that is basically the same. So there are some typical trends that an addict will be going into and the re typical reasons why they would enter into such an addiction but how it plays out in their lives and how it affects their relationships and how their partners respond to that because we are all individuals with very individual, unique personalities and backgrounds and wounds. And these all play into the topping of the addiction with a base that is basically the same. We will go a little bit more into the base later as we're going to talk about the stages of addiction and so on. But in a previous program, you mentioned that the foundation or potential for addiction is laid very early on in life. Why do you think that foundation is laid in a person's life? Well, um, it has been scientifically proved that very early on, uh, one is programmed and about how to develop intimacy. And that intimacy is developed between birth and two years old and up to the seven years of age. And that intimacy is instilled in that baby and in that child just by the parents gazing 
into their eyes and nurturing them and holding them close to each other and to themselves. And the problem is that when this intimacy is not put into place at that very young age, in the place of the intimacy comes fear. Mm. And that fear says, I cannot rely and depend on other people to take care of me. I need to do it alone. And I need to take care of myself. Mm. It becomes the basis of shame and it becomes the the foundation of many wounds. Mm. Um, And the foundation of shame is what often takes people into an addiction. Wow. So it's actually from a very young age. And I think, not I think, I know, that's what the psychologists call the attachment theory, right? Mm. Um, So that's where the um, attachment, healthy attachment starts happening um, up till, I think, two years, very, Mm. very young. But it's so interesting, Frederick, because the Bible says that um, love drives away fear. Mm. And so what you're saying is that when that intimate gazing doesn't happen, and that could happen because of many reasons, right? The mother can be ill, the mother can be depressed, so many things can uh, can lead to this. Um, fear comes in, mm. and that lays the, the basis of, of further addictions that might develop in that person's life. Yeah, I think that is just as you were saying, conditions and circumstances can allow that to happen. For example, uh, my father was very hard working on the farm. He was an alcoholic and absent from a very young age. And my mother was depressed because she had lost so many babies between my brother that was 12 years older than me and myself. And she just had a fear of losing another baby and did not want to perhaps attach to me at that very young age. The neighbors looked after me, mm. and that is where the foundation was laid. Mm, maybe even subconsciously, not yes, the one Yes, of course, subconsciously. Some listeners might be thinking that there are people and circumstances that one can blame for the addiction. What would you say to them? Oh, yeah, I think we are very good at that as addicts. We you know we want to blame other people for the, the situation and condition that we are in. Um, but it it doesn't matter because, uh, like I said, these shame and the, these bases that were laid. Um, let me just say a little bit about what shame is, Suki. There's a difference between healthy shame and unhealthy shame. And the unhealthy shame, Patrick Carnes uh, even calls toxic shame. Um, actually, I think it is John Bradshaw that calls it toxic shame. And that is the shame that says, um, when you've made a mistake, oh, that was terrible of me to do that. And eventually you say, oh, I should have done better. And eventually you go in a downward spiral when you get to the point and say, I'm a flawed human being. And that is what the toxic or the bad shame is. The healthy shame, for example, would be um, if somebody makes you aware of a mistake and it was genuinely a mistake, and then just to say, yeah, that was a mistake. Um, How can I fix it? How can I remedy it? And then continue with your life. That's healthy shame. Right. But I just want to bring you back. Thank you for that. But I want to bring you back to can other people be blamed? Yes. So exactly. 
because of the shame and the unhealthy shame, we tend to blame other people. So um, in my life, I was able, before I started a restoration journey, blame other people. I blamed my parents. I blamed my circumstances. And, and your wife. And, of course, <laughs> I did blame my wife because, you know, if my wife had given me what I thought that she should be giving me, I wouldn't have been addicted. But, and especially, I thought that when I get married, you know, then I will not have any problems. But it didn't work that way. So, definitely... The addict or the person caught in addiction cannot blame anybody else, but they need to take responsibility for their choices and work on their own way forward and growth. It seems that integrity includes seeing the realities and taking responsibility for your own thoughts, like you've just said. Responsibility for your own thoughts, feelings and behavior and being honest about what's happening in your own heart and mind. Yeah, that's so true, Suki. And um, my own experience during my uh, addictive tendencies and addictive stages, I was denying the realities of my addiction, uh, not only of my addiction, but the realities in my own life and uh, my brokenness. And I was trying to live a Christian life with Christian values. But there just seemed to be such a large discrepancy between these two, a large disconnect. So looking back, I can see that this disconnect of between my values, my thoughts and my feelings and behavior was totally, totally against the building of uh, intimate relationship with you. And that is why we couldn't have that intimate relationship. And um, it was just not possible. Mm. What we've seen in some families is that there can be one or more children struggling with addiction while other family members are doing okay. How would you explain that they all grew up in the same family but not all members struggle with addiction? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, each family is unique um, with its unique dynamics and each member of the family is a unique person and experience situations very, very differently and circumstances. So one member of the family could experience the same incident as, oh, that wasn't too bad and able to deal with it. Yet another member experienced the very same incident as very traumatic. And this is what causes one member of the family to experience and have different emotions and intensity of emotions than others. And it's because of our overwhelming feelings and emotions that we are unable to know how to deal with because we've never been taught in our family of origin, just like I had never been taught. So unable to regulate and deal with these feelings is what takes us into a place where we feel we need to do something to feel better, even if it is just for a short moment so that I can cope in those circumstances. And that starts at a very, very young age and continues all the way into adulthood. Okay, um, thank you so much for that. It's time for a short break. Uh, we'll come back to you after the music, and then we'll continue to talk more about addiction and integrity. Frederick, you explained that um, at a young age, lots of overwhelming feelings and uh, some of the other things that we discussed before can lead to uh, a person developing addiction. 
uh, there are also many different kinds of addictions. Can you please explain that to us? Oh, yes, there are definitely there are many types of addictions and inappropriate behavior that one vows to stop but cannot stop. And you know how many promises I made that I would stop. And there are two broad categories of addiction. One is substance abuse, and that is for alcohol and drugs, um, prescription medication, and even non-prescription medication. And the other one is process addiction. And process addiction is sometimes also called behavioral addiction. And that means that we use some behavior to medicate or to feel better, um, such as, for example, eating. And uh, mm -hmm. that is something that we are many, especially in lockdown, uh, get down to. Because when we feel uncomfortable, we call it comfort eating. Mm -hmm. But that comfort eating could become an addiction and gambling and uh, excessive working. And there's actually a word for that, workaholic. Mm. And um, a sexual addiction, porn addiction. Somebody could have excessive exercise or practicing mm. sport. And the list goes on. So there are many behaviors that are process addiction. Rick, I'm even thinking about internet addiction. Oh, yes. And games. People and gaming. And games. That's all part of process addiction. Absolutely. You were trapped in a process addiction, porn addiction. How does a person become a porn addict? Well, you know, Suki, it's common for children at a very young age, as, as soon as primary school age, to be exposed to sexual experiences that they are unable to process. When the potential for addiction is present and the sexual behavior becomes a way to cope when there are overwhelming negative feelings are experienced. So the endorphins, the, the feel-good chemicals uh, in the body, when they are released, it is the same amount of, uh, during a sexual experience, it is the same amount of chemicals that are released when using cocaine mm. to make a person feel better. At a very such young age, children are not ready for sexual experiences. And it's like a, a light being switched on and it cannot be switched off again. So it just continues for the rest of their lives. And this forms the template for dealing with future pain and situations that are, are accompanied with overwhelming feelings. Especially, right, if they are exposed prematurely. Um, that's when they link this, the sensation of a sexual experience as a way to medicate their pain. Am I uh, right when I say that? Absolutely. And uh, it's not a light that that person can switch off for themselves. It's a template that has been put there. And um, they often feel that they need to take personal responsibility to take care of themselves to feel better. And the only way they think to take care is to go back to that sexual experience, right? Because it medicates the feelings. Yes, and it worked many times before. I mean, over and over it works. And then the foundation is laid for future addiction. And future exposure to explicit material just reinforces the addiction cycle that they go into. Right. Yeah, so for many, especially I'm just thinking about pornography that is so common lately, um, it's so easily available everywhere. Mm. So people can use that, even young children, when they get um, 
explicit messages or explicit material on their phones to continue to medicate. And by the time they're in high school, the the, the addiction is already solidified in, mm-hmm. the, in their lives. It's, the foundation for that is already there. Absolutely. Can you please explain the addiction cycle to us? Well, you know, it, it the whole cycle is actually started by the overwhelming feelings that cry out to be soothed, uh, to have a need to feel better. When not dealt with or unregulated, they do it for themselves. They're going into uh, some type of form of addiction, and we call that the addiction cycle. So firstly, unregulated feelings bring up fantasies. In other words, a way to escape from the reality that they are in. And in the program, we are talking about realities. So in the fantasy, they remove themselves from that reality. And that fantasy can start off very innocently, but it very soon goes over to sexual fantasies. Then one goes into the ritual. That means setting up a way to act out. And acting out is the time when you actually behave inappropriately sexually. And um, that institution or the ritual is putting things in place, even subconsciously, to get to the point of acting out. So once a person has acted out, that is the inappropriate sexual behavior, then it goes into despair because you feel guilty, you feel ashamed, and you promise you will never do it again, and you feel remorse. And they become overwhelming feelings again from the despair. So now you see what the cycle is again. So from those overwhelming feelings of despair, you go into fantasy again. And that becomes a cycle. If you and say fantasy, you start fantasizing, like what will you do to look at porn, for example? Is that what you're saying? You're fantasizing about a situation or maybe even an image you had seen before or a story you've heard before. And you're putting yourself into that unreal situation, that fantasy. And the cycle becomes more and more frequent. And that leads to acting out then. That leads to acting out. Which is probably masturbation in some situations, Mm -hmm. and in others it's acting out in other ways. Um, You can be acting out with another person uh, because sexuality without intimacy is acting out, actual fact, or watching porn or masturbating. Or a person could act out with his wife without the wife knowing, being aware of that, right? Yes, a person doesn't even consider that, uh, but that could be acting out because it's sexuality without intimacy. Mm. And it's just sexuality to medicate or to feel better and not to be intimate with your partner. And that, dear listeners, is why we call this program Intimacy, because intimacy is crucial for healthy sexuality. Otherwise, the wife often feels objectified mm, in that mm, relationship. Mm. Frederick, how does sexual addiction shape one's perspective um, or experience of relationships with God, others, and oneself? Oh, well, that's a loaded question, and we could probably spend one whole program on that. But um, my relationship with myself uh, is battered with with shame and uh, negative talk. Um, So I won't even go into 
how badly I feel about myself. You used to feel, right? And oh yes, <laughs> Long and I, ago, I thank anymore. the Lord. I thank the Lord for His journey and His healing and uh, wholeness that He has brought into my my life and our lives. But from that basis of shame, then there is no freedom, no liberty to be in intimate relationships with others, with my wife, with you, Suki. I was so unable to be in intimate relationship with you. And of course, with God either, um, because then I would pray, say, Lord Jesus, I forgive. Please forgive me. And um, I, I need your forgiveness. I promise I will never do it again. And you do it again. Mm. And you say, I'm going to repent. I'm going to switch this off. Uh, but we do it again. Mm. And eventually one believes that God cannot forgive you. And that is what I believed. Uh, God cannot forgive me. God cannot love me. And God cannot help you. Because I remember how many times you said, God, please help me. Cut off my hand. You know, anything. Just help me to stop. Yeah. And you couldn't stop. And that really affects a person's relationship with God, hey, because, but eventually God helps you when you start going for help and you start asking for help when you realize you cannot help yourself. Yeah, those were very common prayers that I had, Suki. Uh, please, God, remove my eyes, make me blind so that I don't uh, go into this thing again. And those are the typical prayers that I am super grateful God never answered. Because he wanted me and he wants us as human beings, as strugglers in this world, to get to the root of why we are unable to be in intimate relationships. He wants to get rid of the root of intimacy disorder. Right. And it's actually through the, rec um, the recovery process that we are able to grow in our character as Christians and mm. in our integrity and move forward and getting really closer to Jesus and ourselves and understand more about our own feelings and our own struggles and our own thoughts and where we can connect deeply with one another, with God and ourselves. Frederick, fortunately, you didn't stay there um, with the struggle and the struggle with connection. You reached out for help. And, uh, I, and that's part of the answer, right? Yes, it is. It is really only when I got to a point of crisis, um, which needed to be created by somebody besides myself. Um, and I saw that I am now in a crisis and I need to reach out for help beyond myself and actually beyond your help as well, um, because we were trying to help each other in this and it just didn't work. Exactly. But when I reached out for help to counselors and beyond myself, that is when we, the real healing and process of restoration had started. So I went to an, a counselor, a Christian counselor. That specializes in addiction. That's, that's the main thing. That's a very, very important question or very, very important fact to mention is that they need to know what the addict is going through and they need to know what the partner of the addict is experiencing. And there are counselors that specialize in the addiction counseling area. So and specifically sexual and porn addiction. Sexual and porn addiction and uh, disconnect. And um, so through the counselors and through that, we were told to get into contact 
with others that are having the same struggle. And that is where the support groups come in. So in our next program, we will be talking a lot more about the different types of support groups that we will be uh, going into, um, the 12-step groups and how they can be used in the connection process. Right. And I will also be talking from a partner's perspective in the next program. Um, This is a huge topic and we will continue to explore it also in other programs. Listeners, uh, please remember to send us your questions. It's fredericksuki at capepulpit.co.za. And uh, we're looking forward to hear from you. Till next time then, God bless. Bye. This insert was brought to you by Radio K Pulpit on 729 AM. Visit us on www.kpulpit.co.za.